What will life look like in 2035? Um, Much better than it is now. I will have my doctorate. Hopefully I have a good job. We'd like to be at peace in the whole world by 2035. Probably won't be like the Jetsons, but it'd be cool. I have no idea because technology keeps changing. I can't even predict the future. That's what we're trying to figure out. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of the Global Risk 2035 podcast. I'm Alex Ward, Associate Director of the Brent Scow Cross Center International Security at the Atlantic Council, and I'll be your host for this episode. In this episode, I'm going to speak with August Cole, the co-author of Ghost Fleet, and Madeline Ashby, the author of VN, two fiction writers who will help us think completely differently about the many possibilities the future holds. August, I know you've written, uh, co-authored uh, Ghost Fleet, where you had... Um, a war between the United States uh, and China, and Russia was involved in there as well. Uh, and Matt's uh, big uh, projection of the future is that conflict risk is at its highest since, uh, since the Cold War, and that includes major state-on-state conflict. So no one better than you, I think, to discuss you know, what might uh, transpire in a major state-on-state conflict, who might be in it, um, or might be going on. And, and as you can imagine, this is probably the uh, breakdown of the post-Cold War order that Matt identifies that, that worries you the most? That's a great question. I think when you look at how much has changed, as Matt has noted in the report in the last four years, where there is, in fact, a conversation about great power conflict that's far more serious and quite different, it's a reflection of some of this pessimism that the global system, which Russia and China uh, benefit from, but also are quite eager to remake so that they see the U.S. Uh, disadvantaged and their positions uh, improved. I think when, when you think about 20 years out in the year 2035 and the kinds of conflict that we'll see even between great powers, it may look very different, though, than the sort of reimagining the Second World War and updating it with you know, Wi-Fi. Part of what I think is important to understand is the criticality of space and cyber as actual domains themselves. And then from that, it leads to this whole conversation about rethinking many of our assumptions about the American way of war and also how we aren't always going to be able to fight on the terms we want to impose on an adversary. When you look at the proliferation of commercial technology, military technology globally, the next two decades are going to see dramatic shifts in some of the really important principles if they haven't already tipped already. You know, in the 20th, 20th century, America could count on using its uh, economic power to drive innovation, particularly in the defense domain. But now the cost of innovation is coming down, whether it's crowdsourcing, whether it's uh, new capital flows, or just flat out disruptive manufacturing and design processes. So suddenly you can have nations or even just small groups that can develop capabilities, particularly in the bio domain, but also in cyber. Uh, and even an unmanned that can throw a real wrench in you know a, a region's uh, plans for stability, particularly those that are underpinned by underpinned by military operations. You know, the the conversation too around the impact of such conflicts continues to I think talk about the kind of catastrophic nature, which is important because we have to recognize that these are real risks that have profound consequences. At the same time, there are ways that nations may wage such conflicts that actually stay below a threshold of uh, conventional or kinetic conflict, but can be just as damaging economically, politically, uh, or even uh, culturally in terms of advantaging one, one nation over the other. I think that's one of the big challenges for the West, particularly for NATO, is how to, how to organize and respond to those kinds of threats. 
Great. Uh, Madeline, uh, I know you are um, thinking about these, these kinds of issues as well. Um, and you also uh, care about sort of the narrative challenge and where the world is headed. And so of the breakdowns that Matt identifies, which is the one that uh, bothers you the most? So what I, what I find really interesting about the narrative challenge is there's a perception within the report that, that, um, that the whole world or that, that major powers within the, within the world, the, you know, the West, the East, the South, um, don't have a narrative for moving forward. And they don't have a, they don't have a, a myth or a story or a fairy tale or a, or, or a hero's journey to, to give themselves to move forward because, you know, the hero's journey is... Is for you know for a lot of it inherently Western, and we're emerging into a time when the global South and, and the global East are, are sort of coming into their own power in a in a very unique way that is unique to them. And so the hero's journey and the and the sort of prototypes that we have for success might not mean the same things there. And I think that that's actually okay. I think that we're looking at it as a challenge because it's, it's, well, their pathway to success might not be like ours, or uh, or the American pathway to success. Might not, uh, might not be what it once was. And it's like, you know, I think that that's actually pretty great. I think that finding a new way to be successful uh, is one of the oncoming challenges of the 21st century. Uh, we're looking at, you know, where our path to success has gotten us in terms of uh, global warming and, and, other, and other challenges. And maybe it's time to sort of, rather than looking at whether or not we can move forward looking at whether or not we can move outward or inward. Uh, so I want to throw a bit of a curveball here. Uh, I'm interested in what both of you have said, but uh, you know, a, another fellow at the Atlantic Council, uh, Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z, um, wrote something for the Modern War Institute, which I thought at least was a different take on this kind of question. His, his basic point was the great war that's coming, and he used the great war, I think, a little emphatically, but um, essentially it is the rise of technology and especially robotics are going to take away so many people's jobs and so many people's livelihoods and change the way that everyone kind of lives that the war will almost be kind of from within in a sense of a revolt against this new system that might be coming and actually predicted and i'm trying to do him justice not necessarily violence but definitely a lot of discord and instability uh is that something that you think, you know, of, of all these forms, and again, these trends that we're talking about are sort of big geopolitical things, but Max has seemed to point that actually the, the crisis that we might need to be worrying about is more micro at the personal level. Does that seem about right to you? I think that Max is right. I think that Max Brooks is correct. I think that we are facing um, a huge amount of internal challenges, and I think that many, I think that many major powers are facing internal challenges as uh, as their citizens look at the rise of automation, the lack of jobs, the, the uh, you know, the fact that it's unaffordable to have a child for the middle class, uh, not to mention uh, uh, classes that are sort of lower than the middle class. Uh, if you're underprivileged, it's now almost impossible in a lot of places to, you know, buy a middle class home, have children, have, you know, have the usual traditional signifiers of adulthood in a Western capitalist system. And I think a lot of people are questioning the very nature of capitalism as a result, uh, and wondering what it would take to move forward to a better, uh, to sort of a better future where we take care of more people. Not necessarily a socialist future, not necessarily a communist future, but a future that is more dignified and humane for everybody. And that's, you know, when you start to ask those questions about capitalism, colonialism, white supremacy, things like that, identity politics, 
August, do you want to jump in? The point that Max Brooks raises about the risk from the robot uprising isn't the machines, but rather how we respond to it is spot on because the, the forces that are going to start to work their way through not just you know, the United States, but uh, throughout Asia, parts of Africa, are going to put a lot of stress on, on political systems. Those systems that are responsive and dynamic may be able to weather some of that better, but others are going to, to really, uh, really, really, I think, reflect the, the, the difficult challenge that the next, let's say, you know, 25 years presents. You know, part of the, the, the look at how does that affect foreign policy and international strategy, I think also has to be rooted in uh, some of the very basic reordering at the economic and political level around domestic economies, but also international ones. You know, the rise of automation uh, will have an impact on globalization, so will additive manufacturing, the, the trade ties and sea lines of communication that are so important today and have been important for the last uh, you know, 25 to 30 years in the Asian economic rise will look very different, for example, uh, in the next 20 to 25 years as some of the economic engines shift gears, whether it's to uh, successfully develop more internal consumption in China or not, whether it's America's desire to you know, try to retake some of its export uh, dominance beyond just you know, big airplanes, essentially, and, and services. So the, the, the challenge that we see in the political system today can, can lead you down a really pessimistic path, unfortunately, uh, because of uh, so much uh, the, the identity politics that Madeline mentioned, but also the lack of responsiveness that the population in, in the U.S. feels. And I don't think that's going to be improved by uh, you know, further economic displacement. You know, some of the very, really fundamental debates going on right now about, you know, how should global trade be, you know, carried out by the U.S., uh, whether it's in the Pacific with uh, TTP or whether it's with, or TPP, excuse me, or whether it's even just revisiting NAFTA, you know, uh, as we've now got enough time under our belts with that to really try to ask the question, was it worth it? And I think you're going to go through some of those same uh, moments of introspection at a time when the world, you know, beyond the U.S. is not going to be necessarily very common very conducive to that because we will have to be paying attention to not only our own domestic uh, and, and, and technologically uh, driven political you know, process of the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, but also how those changes are impacting the Middle East, uh, particularly you know, the, the zones of, 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 kind of chaos right now in and around Iraq and Syria. Those aren't going to be ameliorated or improved most likely by, by further uh, like for their kind of technological progress. I mean, I think if anything, that's going to become much more complicated uh, for us to split our attention. Uh, and that's a big leadership challenge. Uh, and, it, and I think that's going to be something that you'll see uh, happening, you know, in different regions throughout the world with Asia. China will be focused very much on deciding what comes after the Communist Party. What is it supposed to become? Uh, how do you keep a country that big and that much potential and that much history uh, intact, which has always been one of the abiding concerns of anybody ruling uh, the, 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 the region or, or the nation today. So, so I think technology is going to make, particularly automation and uh, the rise of, of thinking machines is going to make a lot of that much more complicated. So will uh, the, the connection of a lot of those technologies to small groups that have you know, ideas that are wholly different from, from larger parts of society that will allow, on one hand, great diversity of thought, which can be a society's strength, but, you know, spun another way, it can be, you know, the kind of keys to its destruction. Interesting. So I'm, um, 
I'm a big and, and also, I'm a big science fiction fan, uh, and so having both of you uh, here, I have to kind of ask this this mix of both a, a like how to write science fiction fan and, uh, and like how to write science fiction, also just as a you know world watcher. You know, I'm I'm I read Matt's report and I and I see all these things and I'm trying to put myself. I've never written science fiction, but I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and thinking. You know, when, when I read science fiction works there while there are tons of things going on there seems to be sort of like one existential struggle sort of at the, at the center of it and i'm reading matt's things and i'm going man there's like a lot of existential struggles here um there are a lot of big issues that affect our world in pretty massive ways and i'm almost thinking like if i were an editor of your guys's work i'd be like this this is too much this is a little a little heavy-handed don't you think um and yet it all of these things seem to be true so uh, I guess what I'm getting at is one when you're when you're world building and you're trying to think of the kind of works that you guys do. How do you take even all these kinds of disparate trends and try to distill them into an engaging work of fiction? And then two, you know, the, these papers tend to they're not necessarily linear, but most think tanks papers kind of go seem to be mathematical. You know, if X, therefore Y. You know, this problem there, this issue, therefore that problem. But in science fiction works, they tend to kind of go all over the place. And so, how would you guys? when you're conceiving of things like this, kind of expand the aperture and, and maybe try to take uh, issues that Matt covers in different directions. I'll, I'll just uh, go for it uh, first here. You know, the, the simultaneity of, uh, that Matt presents in the Global Risks Report, I think is both totally daunting, especially from a policy perspective, but from a, a kind of writing perspective, from a world building perspective, uh, if you're in the science fiction and, and kind of futures domain, it's great. Because one of the big challenges is when you're trying to create a, an engaging world that a set of characters can live within, you're always looking for depth. It's sort of like when you're taking a picture, uh, you, know, you want to have as much uh, depth in, in, that, in that field of vision for certain kinds of shots. And others, you want to have uh, everything in focus up close, but kind of beautifully blurred in the background. And, and I think a really good uh, story, you know, especially at, at kind of longer short stories or book lengths, kind of go in and out of that. And, and what you have here in a, in a report like Global Risks is so much fodder for that, you know, whether it is trying to think about the ageless society, which is just such a really interesting concept that could be overlaid with the uh, kind of swing role that Matt talks about China having where it's uh, stuck in its middle income trap. You know, and the and the rise of financial regionalization, like those are pretty wonky kind of concepts right there. But what that really does is give you a lot of material to work with, as you start literally waking up in that world and thinking about the day to day life of, of those people who are going to be hopefully playing for the high stakes that, that make a good story. Madeline, I'm assuming you want in. <laughs> I think it's obvious that you focus on the on the story of your character. You know, uh, a story, a narrative story doesn't move without, or live and breathe, breathe without um, a compelling character at its heart. And that's true of all genres, science fiction and other genres as well. Uh, you can't really tell a good story unless you have good characters who have problems, who are trying, who are trying and failing and then trying and succeeding. So you focus on what the problems are that are local to them and how they are being sort of impacted by these global trends. And those are... Um, and those happen in small ways. We, we interact with the world in surprisingly small and mundane ways that reveal the world around us. And I think that's the task, is using uh, this person's life as a camera to sort of explore what is going on in their world. And 
why someone is dealing with the challenges that they are dealing with in a really wonky kind of way. If you if you take a, aside a paragraph to explain that, you know, because of the global blah blah blah, you know, this person is impacted by this, you know, that's when that's when you get into uh, that's when you get away from fiction and that's also usually when you get away from good writing. Uh, I think that good writing should be compelling enough to draw you into that conflict and make you think about it. Uh, rather than explaining it to you. Uh, Explanations are for reports and PowerPoint presentations. Uh, Meditations and speculation and uh, and empathy are for fiction. So I'm struck by this because I'm I'm also thinking about our political moment. And the political moment seems to be elites have told us all these high-minded things that we should care about, but they don't care about me. They don't care about my day-to-day life. and so it almost seems like the fiction perspective or, or, or method that you guys are, are discussing may almost be more appropriate for this political moment. How do you then, how do then like leaders or elites, if you want to use that term, kind of sw- uh, switch, you know, make a switch and start to deal with problems or not, not even explain, but discuss these problems with the general public in these kinds of ways? I'll, I'll uh, answer here. You know, one of the, the important things that trying to you know, create characters and build worlds does is it really makes you work on your empathy. And that is something that is not always present, uh, especially in today's political dialogue. But I do think it is a hallmark of you know, some of the best leaders and politicians out there, you know, being able to sit on the other side of the table. And that's incredibly important, particularly in a story, because no hero, you know, in the kind of conventional construct of a, of a tale, is as good as, as, as you know, their villain. Uh, you know, it's really important to understand that duality in a, in a story, and I think that is part of the risk. Uh, you know, the flip side of this for you know political leadership is you know using narrative in, in really kind of destructive ways. But you know, to, to kind of put the positivist you know uh, uh, framework on it, I do think it's really helpful for creating empathy, something that is sorely lacking, and being able to be empathetic with people who don't exist yet in worlds that have not yet been made. I think is even more important because we're able then to start thinking about. Well, how do we, you know, create an outcome that is like, or maybe not like, uh, you know, the the, the character you're who, who you're who you're reading about? Um, and there, there is so much that I think is hard for people to understand at an intuitive level, particularly because there's a lot of uh, you know demonization of science that you then start thinking about how you can start to show people versus, to Madeline's point, telling them. Uh, you have a much more effective way to connect, and and that connection, I think, is again part of what will. You know, help us avoid these kind of further breakdowns of, of, of order. Uh, you know, starts at a very individual level, but that all, of course, feeds into a larger, you know, kind of societal or political, uh, political kind of outcome. Madeline, would you like to jump in? Yeah, um, I think that one of the things that we tend to forget when educating leaders everywhere and at all le- and and at all levels of leadership is an appreciation for art. I think that that used to be part of how um, how we talked about what a Renaissance man or woman was. Included in that was an appreciation for the arts, and that includes fiction, that includes drama, that includes dance and music and and, and the image and the moving image. Um, now we talk about what a president's favorite film is or what a what a leader's favorite band is or something like that, and that's not necessarily a question of any depth or nuance or grace. And really what we need to start thinking about, I think, is is what is it that, you know, how can we engage leaders in art? And I think that this is one of 
art builds empathy. And I think that art is a way for people to talk about uh, individual problems in a, in a really specific and relatable and compelling way. Um, I think that one of the greatest moments that you ever learn about as, as a kid in a in sort of um, American elementary school is when Lincoln goes to Harriet Beecher Stowe and says, so you're the little woman who started this big war, you know, and whether or not that's apocryphal or not, uh, it's, it's still such a, a, a moment, to, it's still such a, uh, an interesting moment to think about whether or not a piece of art can give us the language with which to, di- to discuss these incredibly complicated and heart-wrenching problems. And I think that again, and I think that that's one of art's jobs, and, but it's only able to do its job if everyone can engage with it. So if, if, if we use sort of art as not necessarily problem solving, but as a, as a window into what's going to happen, you know, again, we have Matt saying that uh, conflict, is at high, conflict risk is at its highest since the Cold War. There's no end in sight for the Middle East instability, that China is going to play a swing role with its economics and where it chooses to go in world order, and that the West kind of has a narrative problem uh, as, as power shifts to the East and South and elsewhere. And how does... What is art? You've sort of touched upon it, but what is art's role in kind of all of this? Does it has a, does it have a bigger role than what you've discussed, sort of at the theory level, um, and maybe anything else? You know, which of these? It's a separate question, but I think somewhat related. You know, which of these trends or, or projections that that Matt is making, you know, has a potential for really kind of ruining that 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 empathy ability, or maybe even for catastrophe? I know those are probably three questions in one, but. Um, I thought I'd throw it at you guys. Uh, yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can hurl myself at that one. Um, and, you know, the when you read the global risk report, it's easy to be overwhelmed. There is a lot that can potentially go wrong. You know, between now and twenty thirty five, and you know, when you look around today, I think you see many of the the elements uh, kind of creating this this you know potential future that that is that is potentially that is really dark. Um, you know the the way you know out of that. How do you avoid uh, the further breakdown of the post Cold War order, or how do you avoid a great power conflict? I think is very much aided and abetted by connection at the cultural level, and you know traditionally art has been a very effective way to do that. You know the most dominant uh, kind of commercially successful forms of it today, you know ironically are probably film and I guess video games. Uh, you know so there are you know mechanisms through which we do share experience and uh, you know kind of join around big themes um, you know books can do this too I think some of the best uh, examples of that in the science fiction genre you know are uh, the uh, books that have been translated by Ken Liu like the three body problem by uh, Liu Shishin, uh, Dark Forest, and the third is coming out, I think, any day. You know, for example, there you have a science fiction story that is immensely popular in China, immensely popular in the United States, that creates a common framework about talking about something pretty catastrophic, which is the arrival of, of sort of, you know, malicious ex- extraterrestrials. Um, the point being, though, that suddenly you have a common frame of reference for you know, tackling really big risks. Uh, the Neil Stevenson novel Seven Eves does this really well too. It, it really kind of elevates the conversation much more beyond any one region and starts to really kind of look at larger challenges that humanity faces, which is great allegory for, in fact, many of these big kind of systemic things that we're talking about in global risks. You know, we don't necessarily talk about extraterrestrial life or cosmic events in this uh, in, uh, report, but nonetheless, the kind of wherewithal, the ingenuity, and the innovative spirit 
uh, and the ability to resolve conflict to you know tackle that to create a better uh, to better outcome you know come from some of that and so my hope is that you know the more you know people you have at the leadership but also at the kind of public level who are playing games who are playing uh, reading science fiction novels and seeing films that, that that allow them to have some common connection be it I want to avoid that future or, or I want to go towards that future I, I think the better off we're going to be you know we know just from the way that science fiction has informed engineers throughout the 20th century my hope is that it can continue to do so not just in the kind of technical domain, but in the policy domain when it comes to the 21st century. Yeah, Madeline, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this as well. Um, um, I don't know how to follow such a good answer. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Um, can you refine the question for me based on August? Yeah, I mean, so, so August seemed to make the case that, you know, there are, you could get overwhelmed by these issues, but having some sort of a cultural touchstone um, um, to bridge the divide is at least a way forward, and that art and fiction can can do that. And so, as the United States and, and the West, and so I know the the issue that bothers you, or not bothers you, but maybe keeps you up at night a little bit that Matt has talked about, um, has been this you know no clear path to the Western order. How is can this be used as a device, as a way to 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 connect with other cultures, or and I mean art specifically here, or is this just something that the U.S. might need to tell its story better? I think that the way forward for the U.S. is actually sort of a way inward. I think that um, I think that the, the there may not be a, a sort of driving there among what we would call elites for uh, for the, for that way forward. But if we look at the art of the people that that the U.S. has downtrodden, we do find them all for success. I think that there are there are there's a vast body of work among people who are who have been traditionally underprivileged within the West that tells us how we might band together as communities in order to create change. And and I think that looking to looking to the art of the people that we haven't been listening to can give us the, the things with which to have that conversation and that might be science fiction, it might be music, it might be video games. But it's but it when you you know, it's the, the the answer to the to the old riddle is like, well, you know, I could always hide my keys because I was looking where the light was instead of in the dark. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that if we if we start to look toward uh, if we start listening to the voices that we haven't been listening to, I think we're going to find some of the answers that we're that we're looking for, and I think that goes for art as well. No, that's so 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 kind of developing empathy through um, art seems to be kind of the theme coming out of this and understanding and maybe creating understanding through uh, using those cultural touchstones that so as I'm look as I've read this report I'm thinking like what might what are sort of the trend that might be missing here um, and this may not be a trend or a risk but it is at least an element of how to deal with these sort of problems but Putting that aside for a second, putting on your thinking caps uh, uh, and, and ready caps, you know what? What is something that maybe um, is is missing from this? You know what? What sort of big picture item, or if it's or if it's a smaller picture item, you know what? What is really going to be the thing that that as you look towards the world of the 20, of twenty thirty five, that you're going, man, I really I'm really going to look out for this risk or this trend uh, going forward that hasn't really been identified yet. When reading the the, the global risks report, I think it's really important that uh, people who are considering the next 20 years don't lose sight of how much really interesting innovation is going in and around 
space and low Earth orbit uh, that has the potential to have large economic and even political impact. You know, this is being driven not by governments uh, primarily, but by space enthusiasts who are incredibly well capitalized and have great track records of success doing very risky business endeavors, be it electric cars or you know, e-tailing. The, the way I see this unfolding is that it is going to start forcing government to respond as well and to figure out how these sorts of uh, movements can be captured uh, and, and harnessed for good uh, while also staying out of their way enough so that you don't delay or, or, or slow the kind of uh, really exciting scientific innovation that I think drove you know, certain parts of, of you know, global progress in the 20th century. So we don't know necessarily, and particularly me, you know, I'm not an engineer, exactly how that's going to manifest, but I'm fairly certain that that is going to start to have a, a larger and larger impact. And one way that it might be so in an unforeseen manner could be around the value of uh, nations themselves or political systems. If you're able, for example, to bank off Earth or ascribe citizenship to a non-state entity that affords you many of the same rights or perhaps even better ones than your, your, your own nation where you were born did, suddenly you have some big challenges there. And whether those are scalable or not, or whether it's the, the, the equivalent of a, a Guernsey Islands you know, kind of uh, tax you know, haven, I don't know, but, but it has that potential that you start to see people actually look at the political system today, look at the international order today and say, you know what, this is broken, it's just not working for me individually and it's not working for my kind of near community, so I'm gonna actually be part of something that looks much more functional. That there may be trade-offs, that go around whether it's rights or economic activity or identity, but those kinds of trade-offs are often what really drive major game-changing shifts, uh, you know, at the kind of societal and, and technological level. So, the 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 impact that space will have, I think, will be profound. Uh, and what's exciting is we don't really know how yet. Madeline, is space also on your list, or uh, do you got something yeah. else in mind? <laughs> Yeah, maybe in that level there isn't a clear way forward. 
other levels. I'm pretty sure they have some ideas. So maybe we'll we'll end uh, with this. And you've kind of touched upon, both of you have touched upon maybe elements of this through your answers, maybe being a little more concrete, you know, for for those, uh, and I'll be taking my own notes, for those aspiring science fiction writers who are want to cover this kind of space, so the intersection of uh, fiction and, and, and global trends and world affairs, you know, what's kind of the key advice that you would give them um, for those who are clearly listening uh, just for that advice alone on this podcast? Uh, my answer is this. Do everything that you can to save journalism. <laughs> that is the only way that you'll ever learn the things that you need to know about the trends that are coming. A lot of hard work gets done by, by journalists to bring you those signals, but they can't do it if you don't support them. August, as a former journalist, maybe you appreciate that and you got something else going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my take is a little bit different. I mean, my, uh, you know, when, when you start looking into the future, I think some of the most important things you can unpack are all the, the elements of this tomorrow that you want to come true and, and really start turning those over because it's suddenly gonna force you to confront your own assumptions and beliefs and allow you to begin spending time in somebody else's shoes. As Madeline said, you know, the diversity of ideas uh, and, and kind of innovation out there is getting easier and easier to access and coming from more and more places. And I think it's incumbent on particularly science fiction writers or, or, and policymakers too, to tap into that, it's almost inexcusable not to. And so creating on-ramps at that personal level for new ideas, for good ideas, it's incredibly important. Journalism is obviously part of that, but but so is you know doing kind of deep research. Uh, you know, a report like Global Risks is part of that. I'm a big believer also in you know in-person connections, spending time with people uh, who may be thinking and working in ways that really aren't a lot like your own, because in fact you're able to uh, often glean a lot more than than you might think. The, the very basic act of just sitting down and spending time in, in a future world uh, through writing is something that has to be done, I think, habitually, uh, but in doing so can be even more effective the more you do it. So the answer, I think, is you know more, 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 more reading, more connections, more writing. Uh, and, and that's something I would love to see the kinds of you know, traditional audiences for, for a paper like Global Risks uh, really, really kind of onboard and, and, and take on. You know, th- this report itself is is important because it actually includes a fair bit of the fiction that the Atlantic Council's Art of the Future project has helped curate. And we have voices in, in there that aren't part of the traditional science fiction community, the traditional foresight community. It's incredibly exciting to see that. And I think it speaks to the commitment that Matt has, that the council has, that that there is real value in using these kinds of alternative means to explore the future. Um, we're going to see more of it, uh, that's for certain, and uh, the Global Risks uh, Report is a really great way to start. Well, with that, I think we'll end it. Uh, thanks to you both for, for joining uh, this episode, and the, for those listening, the next episode will be uh, a discussion on uh, what next uh, and how to move forward with Global Trends. With my thanks to August and, and Madeline for joining uh, today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. In the third and final episode of our three-part Life in 2035 series, I will speak with two people who have different backgrounds. Amy Zalman of Strategic Narratives is a world-renowned futurist and used to be the president and CEO of the World Future Society. 
John Hudson is a senior reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine, where he covers U.S. foreign policy, ranging from the State Department, the Pentagon, to industry, and beyond. They will both discuss how the future will change depending on America's actions, and how certain events will occur and shape the global context, no matter what America does. For more information on the Strategy Initiative at the Atlantic Council, check out acstrategy.net and engage with us on social media using hashtag LifeIn2035. And if you have any videos or ideas you want to submit to us, please do so at LifeIn2035 at AtlanticCouncil.org.